We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So there were nine of us in a one-bedroom apartment, and I had to get out of there. It was driving me nuts. Uh, This was friends of my mom's that decided to host us when her and her six kids, myself included, didn't have anywhere to go. So the seven of us, when the two of them in their one bedroom, it was pretty packed, to say the least. I got a little spot a floor on the corner to call my own and threw a blanket on and slept. And that was the only moment where I felt comfortable. The rest of the time I went outside the apartment and I just hung out outside, got to know people, strangers and random people. This is one of many different places we called home growing up with my mom. Uh, Often it would be trailer parks. It would be places that weren't super comfortable, weren't very clean, weren't very safe, and we knew we would be there for a short time, and then we'd go to another place that was very similar to it. But oftentimes, there were small spaces like the one I just described that couldn't really contain our whole family. And yet, they always had one thing in common, other than being small (laughs) and not safe. Our family was there. That's what made it home. That's why I could call this trailer or this little tiny apartment home. I'm going home to this place because otherwise it's just a structure, but my family lived there. So that was my home. What we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 2 at first glance is not going to sound much like uh, home. You're going to be like, why did Chris share that story, right? But I think as we dig deeper in it, we're going to see it's all about God making his home with his family, with his people. And sometimes the spaces that he chooses to dwell in are almost, they're too small and too confining for him to fill it. And yet God in his grace and in his mercy and in his desire to pursue and be with us fills those spaces. So read with me in Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, They, and this is Jesus's followers, his disciples, the 12, but also says earlier on, there were about 120 of them together. We're all together in one place. Verse two, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when this occurred, a crowd came together and were confused because each one heard them speaking in their own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, lots of words, right? 
Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. So Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, I love that, by the way, like maybe if it were later, they would be. It's only nine in the morning, though, so they're not. Verse 16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel chapter two here. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above. Sorry, the wind just blew my pages. Talking about a wind coming in. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's word. We're going to pause there, but we're going to pick up in the rest of chapter two in Acts next week. Do you, can you think of any other times throughout the biblical story, throughout scripture, when there is a moment where God had something to do with many languages all in one space? You can say it louder. Yeah, there you go. Some courage, like, uh, you're right, you're right, you can say it louder. The Tower of Babel, right? So in Genesis 11, there's this interesting story where it says at that time, all people everywhere had one language. They could all understand each other. They all spoke the same language. That would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? I've been trying to use Duolingo to learn Spanish. My Espanol is not very good. It's no bueno. I know muy poquito. That's, that's it. I used all my words right there. That's all of it. And I probably said them wrong. Anyway. Uh, it would be nice. I've grown up in Phoenix my entire life. It'd be nice to be able to communicate with like a big population of my neighbors who live here, right? And so shame on me for not learning it sooner, but I'm trying now. Uh, also, my, on my dad's side of the family, we are Lebanese, part Lebanese. And so we just got some new neighbors next door to us and they're Syrian. And so we were talking and I was like, oh, I, my family's from Lebanon. And they got all excited. And one of their older sons, he's like in his early 20s, he was like, I knew it. I knew it. That beard. It's a dead giveaway. <laughs> it's like, yeah, my, all my Lebanese is right in my beard and the rest is just white. Uh, that's where it went, right here. And so then they're like, so, so can you speak? And I was like, no, I just speak English, guys. I'm sorry. And you just see the disappointment on their face right away. Like, oh, okay, you're an American. Like, <laughs> um, so it would be nice to be able to just like be able to communicate with our neighbors, right? So there was a time when everyone spoke one language. And they came together in one space and they could all understand each other and they could all work together. It sounds like kind of like a utopia, right? 
it sounds like, man, this would be great for our world to get to this space because in our idea of what is going to save things, what's going to fix things is if we could just all work together. In fact, one of the other apps out there, I told you I'm using Duolingo, another one out there for teaching you different languages is called Babbel. Not B-A-B-B-L-E, like you babble on and on, like I do on Sundays, but like Babel, like B-A-B-E-L, like the Tower of Babel, right? You see what they're getting at? So all these people come together and they start working on building a city. They say, let's build a city, a home for ourselves. And this is actually the start of a city called Babylon. They start building the city together. And then they say, now let's make this tower in the city that rises up high to the heavens. And we will make a name that's great for ourselves. We'll, we'll, we'll make ourselves look amazing. And we'll, we'll be able to build this tower and we could reach the heavens. We could get back to the space where God's at. And God actually looks and says, this is incredible what they're able to do already because they all speak the same language. If they're already doing this, what's gonna stop them from all kinds of things? So let me confuse them with different languages. And God actually scatters them with confusion where now suddenly I've been talking with Will and hanging out with Will and suddenly he just starts speaking gibberish. And I'm going, dude, what are you saying? Did you have a stroke? Like what's going on? And now this is happening with all my friends and and my neighbors and we can't understand each other. How weird would that be, right? And so what do they do? They start doing what we do today where they gather up with the people who are like them, right? Well, I can understand you and you. Let's hang out because Will's making no sense anymore. And so then they start dispersing. And now you start getting different languages and different nations forming, different kingdoms forming. And then these kingdoms and nations, they start going at war with each other throughout the generations. God did that. And now we have this story where God is allowing people of all kinds of different languages to understand one another, like a reversal of what happened with Babylon. And you got to ask the question, like, why? It seems like he's got two opposite motives here, right? But if we think about it, in that story in Genesis 11, what the people were trying to do is what? Build a home for themselves, for their honor, for their glory, and for their name. And what has changed In this story we just read in Acts chapter two, there's a group of people who are from all over the world who have come together to hear about God's glory, about his wonder, about his awe, about the miraculous works he has done, it told us. And these disciples who, they're different from one another too. We've talked about this before. You got a zealot and a tax collector. They would have hated each other. The zealot would have tried to kill the tax collector in any other circumstance. But Jesus made them not just friends, family. They were united now under a different name. Jesus had commanded them. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize them. Remember we said that word just means immerse. I want you to cover them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. They're given a new identity. They're carrying a new name with them. And it's almost as if God's saying, okay, now we can build this city. Now we can build this house. 
because the family that lives there, because the identity that is filling it is so much different than what was going on in Babel. Does that make sense? And it's interesting that God chooses to do this on this particular day. We started with saying on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had arrived. Now we all, if if you've been around the church for a while, you may know like, oh, that word Pentecost, I know what that means. That's the day the spirit comes. That's what we just read about, right? But it was already called Pentecost before this event happened. Does anybody know what that word means? It's okay, you don't have to know Greek. I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> Pentecost, it means 50 days after, okay? It's 50 days from, and it's 50 days from the last feast they had. In the Jewish custom, they had three main feasts. They had lots of feasts, lots of celebrations, which was great, but they had three main ones to remember what God had done to save them out of slavery when they had no home, and he gave them a land of their own. He gave them a home, and he made his home with them. Three main feasts. You got first uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. Lots of different words you could use there. And basically what they would do is they would set up these tents and these booths that they would live in to remind them of how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years waiting to get into the land God had promised them. And yet how God provided for them in that wilderness, how they still had a home even when they had no home because God was present with them. He was their refuge. He was their fortress. He was the one who called them into his shelter. So they make these little booze and they would actually, in these festivals, in these feasts, they would actually live in these tents for a couple weeks. And they would remember what God did for their ancestors during that time. Then you got the feast of Passover. And we're more familiar with that one, right? Passover feast, it was reminding them of how when God's people Israel were in Egypt before he rescued them out. One of the ways he did that was by sending plagues on Egypt until Pharaoh would finally relent and go, okay, fine, your people can go free, right? And the last one was the death of every firstborn male. But God gave a way for those who trust him, who honor him, who follow him to be rescued, to be saved, that death would pass over them. And so if they would sacrifice a lamb, smear the blood over their doorpost, Death, when it came that night, would pass over that home and they would all be safe. And so they have a Passover meal where they remember that. And then finally they have, out of those three main ones, what's called the Feast of Weeks or often also the Feast of Harvest. And what that was, was a reminder of when they did finally get into their promised land, the home God had promised them after 40 years in the wilderness, after 400 years in slavery in Egypt, when they got in, they remembered how there was plenty of food, plenty of harvest. And so that feast is celebrating the first fruits of the harvest that they would gather together. So another way that that word is also expressed is the feast of ingathering, where they gather the first uh, reaping of that harvest that year. So you have these three feasts going on. And it's interesting, we, we know Jesus was heavily involved in the Passover feast, right? Passover feast That was when he goes to Jerusalem. He shares his final meal with his disciples, with his followers, before he's betrayed. He's betrayed by one of his own family members, one of his own followers. And the Roman guards come and they take him away and they end up killing him. 
And he becomes the Passover lamb for all of humanity. That if we would trust in him, his blood covers us, death would pass over us. And we would actually come out of our slavery and death and into new life, into the promised land of eternity. Passover, like, man, beautiful image, right? Uh, And now we're seeing at Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, it's another name for the Feast of Harvest, or ingathering, or weeks, whatever you want to call it, right? This festival, something amazing happens as well. And so it had me wondering, I was like, so what happened with the the first festival, right? The, The Feast of the Booze, the Tents, the Tabernacles, like, How come nothing significant happened there? But then I found it. Something significant absolutely happens there. It's in John chapter seven. I think I have the verse we can throw up on the screen here. And in John chapter seven, context for this before I pick up in verse 37. This is what happens. Jesus' brothers, they don't really believe he is who he says. He is his own brothers, his own family, right? And so they're at home and they're like, hey, Jesus, this big feast is going on in Jerusalem. Why don't you go? And why don't you just tell everybody who you are? You know, gather all your followers there. And he goes, no, it's not my time yet. And this is a really interesting thing, like kind of have to reconcile with Jesus is like, he tells him, no, I'm not going to go. You guys go ahead. And then he secretly goes, (laughs) like he kind of like just jukes him a little bit, you know? He's like, you guys go ahead. I'm going to stay here. But then he goes but he doesn't go publicly like they wanted him to. He goes secretly and he's hanging out at this, uh, this feast of booths, right? And then on the last day, this is what it says, verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. That sounds really good. But this is what he's saying. John peels back the curtain for us here. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So at this first feast, the first of these three main feasts, reminding God's people how he had rescued them out from slavery where they had no home and bringing them into a home where he called them to make their home in him, that he would be their refuge and their shelter, where he cared for them even in the wilderness. The first feast, Jesus shows up and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And this is who I am. And if you come to me, you will have everything you need. You will have life flowing, bubbling up from within you because that's my spirit. My spirit will come upon you. Jesus promises the spirit at the first feast. The second feast, he makes the way for that to happen. And in the third feast, we just saw, we just read in Acts 2, he shows up. Isn't that incredible? This is not a bunch of random stories from a bunch of different authors all over the world compiled together. This is one story. It's one true narrative of the entire world that we live in. And it's a story that we now find ourselves in, that the spirit of God has come. And at that feast, the feast of the first fruits of the harvest, the ingathering, Jesus was forming his first group of the church, 
the first fruits of his followers that would become this new humanity, this new community that would live in stark contrast to the rest of the world who's still trying to build a tower for themselves, still trying to make a name for their own glory. And yet God's calling this community filled by living streams of life, filled by his spirit to show a different story in the midst of all that. It's interesting that the spirit comes in two ways described. First, a violent, rushing, strong wind just blows through the house. And that one's a little easy to understand because we've, as we went through all last year, the whole story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we saw that the spirit of God is the same word used for wind or breath, right? So this breath of God is just rushing into that house and filling these people. But there's also this fire that comes in and it separates into like all these little flickering flames looking like tongues almost that rest over them. Now, if you thought it was weird when Will and I started speaking different languages and like speaking nonsense to each other, like how weird would that be when you're sitting in that room? It's like, dude, there's fire on you. Like you want to brush it off with the person, right? No, you got it too. Oh, okay. What is this? And, and we're safe. There's fire and it's not burning us up. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that anywhere else in the story too? Burning bush. Who just said that? Good job, Chris. You get a gold star. <laughs> the burning bush. Exactly. God shows up to Moses on top of this mountain, this mountaintop. Uh, it has two names throughout scripture, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. Uh, just different dialects, different regions of what they would call it. And so on top of this mountain, Moses has this interaction with God himself. And it's described as this, this kind of blowing breeze that comes over this bush and the fire that's over the bush, and yet it doesn't burn it. And God speaks to Moses and he calls him to do what? To go rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. All these recurring themes. <laughs> And then he tells them, I want you to go bring them out and bring them back to the same mountaintop. And so what we find in Exodus 19 is they go to Mount Sinai and God descends on the mountain and it's described almost like a horror scene, this crazy tumultuous storm, winds blowing down, smoke coming down, clouds coming down, and then fire raining down. A violent wind and fire. And yet the people are safe. They're not being burned up. And God calls Moses up and he's safe and he speaks with him. And then as they're sent out from there, from Mount Sinai, and they're wandering around in the wilderness because little speed bump along the way, they didn't listen to God. That's a whole nother story, right? Uh, and so because of that, they prolong their time in this wilderness until they get to the promised land. And while they're living in these booths, while they're living in these makeshift tents and homes, like a one bedroom apartment for nine people, Right? While they're out there, God goes with them. And he has them build this thing called a tabernacle. So he's living in a booth right there with them, living in a tent too. And the glory of God somehow squeezes into this little tent so he could be with his family. And it says that that would lead them by day with fire and by night with cloudy winds. This presence of God keeps showing up in this way. This is a reoccurring theme. 
Then you fast forward and Israel gets into their homeland. They get into the land God promised them and they start building a nation. They start building a kingdom and they build a temple and God fills that temple. The fire and wind presence from the tabernacle. It has transferred from the bush, from the mountain, from the tabernacle to now the temple. You got this wind that just comes over it, clouds. And then inside there's this fire that's lit all the time. They have to keep it lit all the time. You never go out until the temple's destroyed. And Israel's captured by other nations and they're taken from their home and someone else invades their home because they have continually rebelled against God. So then finally, God hears their cries asking for help and he finally comes and he rescues them. He allows them to go back into Israel. He even allows them to rebuild the temple. But guess what does not happen this time? There's no fire and there's no wind. God's presence does not fill that temple. But God is making another home. God didn't give up on his people, even though they rebelled against him. And Jesus, the temple of God, the presence of God, the holiness, the glory of God, squeezing himself into a human body so that he can come and be with his family so he can come and be with his people. Jesus comes and he says this, I'm gonna baptize you with fire and water, right? John's baptizing in water. Jesus will baptize in fire. Jesus tells people at one point, if you destroy this temple, it will be raised back up on the third day. They don't know what he's talking about. It took forever to build that temple. What are you saying? And he says, he's speaking of his body. And sure enough, his body is raised again. But God still is desiring to make a home with his people. So even when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a home for you, I'm preparing a better place. No longer will you have to live in this little one-bedroom apartment or this little trailer. I'm preparing a beautiful home where we will live together. There's enough space. In the meantime, what does he do? He continues to make his home with his people and he fills a new body and fire and wind come rushing in and God's people now become the temple. Not this building where you go and worship, but human beings, you and I, God is making his home with us. And this is the story that Peter starts telling all these people as they come in, all these different languages. And he's saying, you are invited into this. You get to come make your home in God because he is making his home in you. And what we'll read next week is 3,000 of them say, yes, I want that. Do we want that? Are we welcoming God to come make his home in us so that we can find our home in him, that he would be our shelter, our refuge, our safe space. Jesus has made the way for that to happen. And he did that by going first to that Passover meal and becoming the meal on our behalf. And this is why every week we take this meal. Normally we have it off to the side of the room. Uh, I, I think actually it should be up front and center. We feast on Jesus. We feast on that meal. That Passover feast is what allows us to enter into this feast of the harvest we just read about now. That because Jesus has become the sacrifice on our behalf, his blood covering us so death would pass over us, we now can be filled just as he promised at the first feast. We can be filled with the life of God, 
his presence within us. So I wanna invite you to come up to this table uh, in just a moment and you'll grab a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup and then you can go back to your seat and we're gonna take communion together. Uh, But let me pray for us first. And as soon as we're done taking communion, we will sing one more song and we'll send each other back out because what did God do at the end of Acts 2? He not only invited all these people in for this transformative experience, but then they all went back home to their own land, to their own country, their own people, and their own language, and they shared the good news there. Father, help us to be those people. Help us to join your family, to live as your children, filled with your spirit. God, that in whatever place you have us and whatever language is surrounded us, God, that in our language you give us, we would be able to speak the good news as your disciples did on that day. That your spirit would be giving us the boldness, giving us the courage, giving us the love, giving us the grace, and giving us the truth so that others may come and join your home as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.